I'm Ayla Ellison, and you're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. Since approving Adjahelm, the failed Alzheimer's drug, the FDA has faced scrutiny. The FDA approved the drug despite an independent advisory committee voting to reject it in an overwhelming vote where 10 panelists voted against it and one voted uncertain. But the FDA approved the drug anyway. The controversial move raised a question. Does the regulator have a bias favoring approval? In a study published this summer in JAMA Health Forum, researchers found that the FDA is much more likely to agree with panel recommendations when they are positive. Dr. Genevieve Cantor is a professor at the USC Price School of Public Policy. She joins Fierce's Kevin Dunleavy to talk about the possible FDA bias and what that means for drug development. Here they are. Hello, Jenny. Thanks for being with us. You've reviewed this study pretty closely. What can you tell us about it? The study of FDA advisory committees was conducted by Aaron Kesselheim's group at Harvard. They looked at 12 years of meetings of committees advising on drug approvals between 2010 and 2021. And they found that when advisory committees gave a green light, so when they said, yes, we recommend approval, the agency agreed with that recommendation 97% of the time. So almost all the time. But when advisory committees said, no, don't approve, the agency only followed that recommendation 67% of the time. Now, two other studies have looked at this question before, and they didn't see a difference in how the agency reacted. So whether the committee said yes or no, the FDA pretty much followed their recommendations at the same rate. And so what's different about this study compared to the previous studies is that the other studies only tracked what the FDA did for a relatively short amount of time, a year, whereas Aaron's group had a much longer follow-up period to be able to see what the FDA ultimately did. And that's how they found this asymmetry, that the FDA was much more likely to agree with its advisory committees when the committees said, yes, approve the drug. So we've got this imbalance 97% of the time when the positive, when the recommendation is positive, the FDA agrees, but then only two-thirds of the time do they agree when the recommendation is negative. What should we make of this? It seems to me that if the FDA were just being fair and even-handed, we wouldn't see this imbalance, yeah. right? The, the agency, of course, doesn't have to, like a drone-like creature, do everything that the committee recommends. But the fact that the FDA was less likely to go against advice when the advice was to not approve tells us something. And my reading of it is that there's what I would call a bias or a preference, if you like, towards approval. So here's an analogy. Suppose you were appointed to be a career advisor to Tom Brady, right? Quarterback. And before every season, he comes to you to get your advice. And he says, you know, I'm getting older. My body's getting tired. Should I continue another season? And you say, yeah, I think you're in good enough shape. You should definitely do that. And he says, thanks, buddy. Appreciate your advice. I'm going to do that. But then one day you say, you know, no, Tom, I think this is it. You know, you're getting up there. I don't think you should play this season. And he says, well, thanks for your advice, but I'm going to play anyway. That tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you they already had some preference, some particular bias, in this case of this fictional Tom Brady, you know, towards playing. So, so that's the analogy here. If the advisory committee says, yes, FDA says, thanks for your great advice, we'll do that. If it says no, the agency says, thanks for your advice, but we're going in a different direction. 
So we just view the advisory committees as isolated events, one at a time. We might think that, oh, the FDA is just asking for the committee's advice of whether the agency should approve this drug. But when you see all 409 committee meetings analyzed and this imbalance, you get a bigger picture. The committee isn't exactly asking, should we approve this drug? But instead asking maybe a more subtle uh, change in the question, which is, what is preventing this drug from being approved right now? The FDA wants to approve the drug, and the advisory committee is, in a way, helping to identify the barriers, if there are any, to approving the drug. So let's go to the approval of Adjahelm. The committee had 11 members, and 10 voted thumbs down, and the other abstained. But somehow the FDA found a way to make this approval happen. And I guess this speaks to what you're talking about, trying to find a way through the committee to make approvals happen. Could you explain in the instance of Adjahelm how that happened? In the Adicatamab case, the Adjahelm case, the evidence presented was, at least according to the committee, pretty unpersuasive. Almost everyone on the committee, as you mentioned, 10 out of 11, and the 11th was uncertain, felt that there just wasn't sufficient evidence that Adicatamab slowed cognitive decline. Now, in this case, the FDA didn't say, well, since you all don't want to approve this drug, tell us a different way we can get this drug to market. So they, they don't do things like that. So instead of the way these things work is that the almost unanimous vote showed that there was absolutely no hope that aducanumab was going to get approved based on the clinical endpoint of cognitive function. So they had to look for an alternative pathway, and there was one available, the accelerated approval pathway which would not be based on a clinical endpoint, you know, actual patient health or well-being or mortality, but instead is based on a surrogate endpoint, which is a proxy for patient health. It's a biological marker that's supposed to predict patient health. So the sponsor didn't have to show that there was a change in the clinical endpoint of cognitive function, that there was an actual clinical benefit. They would only have to show that there was a change in the surrogate endpoint, which is in this case, a reduction in beta amyloid so some biomarker that they could argue is, quote, reasonably likely to provide a clinical benefit. And just as an aside, even in the case of beta amyloid, not everyone thinks that this is a good proxy or a good surrogate endpoint for cognitive decline, that it predicts cognitive decline well. That's actually still up for scientific debate. But the FDA advisory committee wasn't convened to discuss that scientific issue either. So FDA just went ahead, made that approval decision based on the surrogate endpoint, not on cognitive function. And they did that without advisory committee input. And they probably knew, based on the earlier vote, what the advisory committee would have said. Jenny, I read your commentary, which was published alongside the study in the JAMA Health Forum, and you mentioned the role of patient advocacy groups. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? When you see a result like this, a tendency towards approval, the question you know, I and many people ask themselves is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer is, it depends. The FDA works for the public. And if public sentiment is that we should have more drugs and more access to drugs more quickly, then the FDA is reflecting the preferences of its public. And so that's why I mentioned the patient advocacy groups. Many of these groups favor greater access, more choice. And if these advocacy groups are truly reflecting patient preferences, then this pro-approval stance is not a problem. Patient groups should realize that there's a trade-off here, that faster approval also means more risks. And for example, more risk that the drug may not be as effective as we hope it might be, 
because the approval is based on a surrogate endpoint and not a demonstrated health benefit or more risk that there could be safety issues that come up that we didn't pick up because the drug was being rushed to market. So if the public is willing to take that risk, then the agency is just reflecting what the public wants. And that's a good thing. What about the relationship between the industry and the FDA? Do you think that this pro-approval bias reflects any of that? Is there anything to be concerned about there? I guess the alternative to this pro-approval stance reflecting public preference is that it reflects the drug company's preferences, not necessarily what the public would want. I mean, I think it remains to be seen that, and there should certainly be much more study into whether there's undue industry influence on the FDA. In the Biogen Aticanumab case, where there was a congressional investigation, the Energy and Commerce Committee and the House Committee on Oversight and Reform jointly did an investigation, and they found that there were a lot of unofficial interactions between the agency and Biogen. So at least in that case, there did seem to be industry influence at play. I think a third explanation, just to be comprehensive, if it could be that the pro-approval stance is reflecting what the public wants, if indeed the advocacy organizations are reflecting the public, although we know that there's some evidence that they may not be reflecting the true public view. Um, So that's one explanation. The second is it's reflecting what the drug companies want. And the third explanation, I think, just to round things out, is that maybe the people who are staffing the agency are pro-approval or pro-access. There may be political appointees to the agency who have an industry background, maybe more sympathetic to industry interests, but a lot of the folks involved in decision-making are longtime civil servants, and it's not at all obvious that FDA is recruiting folks who want to disapprove drugs willy-nilly. I do think, however, that the FDA commissioner, who is a presidential appointee, does set the tone for how industry is viewed and treated at the agency. Another interesting finding from that report was that uh, advisory committee meetings have declined uh, from 47 in 2010 and then a high of 50 in 2012 to a low of 18 in both 2020 and 21. This seems odd considering that applications for approvals have likely increased over this period. Is this a situation where the FDA is not finding as much value in assembling the committees? That's a great question. We wish we knew what was going on. Um, It seems implausible to me that with the increased complexity of drugs that less expertise is required. So my guess is there's something about the greater use of expedited pathways to approval. So if you're a sponsor and you have a fast track designation, there's a timeline when FDA has to give you a decision. Or if you have priority review instead of standard review, the guaranteed review time is six months instead of 10 months. So FDA has to hit the deadlines. And when you have tighter deadlines, there is not as much time to pull everyone together that's needed for an advisory committee meeting. So FDA is making these calls without this external advice, primarily because of time pressures. Another interesting thing that I saw was an instance with COVID-19 vaccine approval. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was an interesting case. It's a little bit inside baseball, but it's an interesting. So this is mostly related to less the initial COVID vaccine authorization and more related to the booster shots that came later. And the issue here was that FDA was reviewing these booster applications and they had not yet convened an advisory committee meeting much less authorized or approved any booster shots. But the administration, maybe in an effort to reassure the public that they're doing something, announced plans to make the booster shots available by X date. Now, 
What message are you sending when the advisory committee hasn't even seen or reviewed the evidence, the agency hasn't even authorized the boosters, and you're making plans to make them available? You're essentially saying that it's the politicians and the political appointees who decide on the science and not the scientific experts at the agency. Shortly after that, two very experienced leaders of the Office of Vaccines quit, and the stated reason was that they're retiring. Now, it's a deeply unfortunate time to be retiring in the middle of a pandemic, but okay. So the word on the street, by which I mean the New York Times and Washington Post, a very elite media street, you know, had come out with reports since suggesting that they, these two senior officers, resigned in protest to the political pressure that was being put on the Office of Vaccines. It's just not a good message to be sending across for any administration. And I hope it's not a reflection of a more systematic attempt to undermine the actions of independent agencies. My last question is about FDA Commissioner Robert Califf. He suggested doing away with advisory committee voting. What do you think is going on there? Well, the timing is a bit odd and it's all just a little bizarre because it's not as if there's this huge wave of discontent anywhere related to advisory committees and their voting. The claim that's being put forth is that the agency doesn't really pay attention to the votes. It's primarily the discussion that matters. Anyone who's ever read a transcript, you know, 300 pages of transcripts of an advisory committee meeting or spent an ungodly number of hours in that room or on Zoom watching these meetings knows that there's a lot of nuance and complexity in the discussion. So the, what the vote does is it captures pretty succinctly an important sentiment that is, I think, useful to the public and also, I suspect, to the agency itself. Is it possible that the media and public disproportionately latch on to the vote tally itself? Possibly, but it seems a little bit of an overreaction to just abolish the vote. And by the way, it's not as if there is just the approval vote for the drug. Many meetings have multiple votes related to the evidence. And these votes are very helpful for clarifying where people stand on different parts of the evidence that's presented. So my guess is that the FDA might want a certain kind of messaging. And sometimes the advisory committee members aren't going along with that playbook. By law, advisory committees have to be open to the public with some limited exceptions. So if advisory committee members are raising an issue in a public forum that isn't consistent with the messaging that the FDA wants to get across or isn't consistent with what the agency has decided it already wants to do, you know, that's a problem for the agency. It looks like to an outside observer and not just this outside observer, but many outside observers like an attempt to obfuscate or make things less transparent. And I think that would be very, very unfortunate. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.